following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Over the last decade, the population of South Carolina has grown by about 500,000 people, half a million people, from a little bit under 4.6 million to a little over 5.1 million souls. And according to multiple studies, the vast majority of the population growth has come from inbound relocation to the state. In other words, Lots of people may be having babies, but lots more people are moving here from other parts of the country. In fact, several of our households here this evening have made cross-country or even international moves to the Greenville area. And when you moved here, I want you to think about what some of the things uh, that you had to take care of, you know, the, the adult kind of logistical things. You had to change your mailing and your billing addresses on all your stuff. You had to meet new neighbors and get to know them a little bit. You had to buy new furniture, perhaps. Uh, You had to maybe select new physicians and doctors, find a new church. And children, within the first month of your parents moving here, your mom or your dad or both of them had to troop down to this uh, wondrous place called the Department of Motor Vehicles to get a new driver's license or an ID card. In fact... Perhaps your dad had to go down three or four times because all the paperwork was very confusing. Mom and dad, when you received that coveted South Carolina ID, you could then prove to anyone who asked that your identity had changed in at least one fairly significant and important respect. You were no longer a Californian or a Texan or a Colombian or a Floridian or a Pennsylvanian, rather you were a South Carolinian. And as one friend told me, there's nothing finer than being in South Carolina. And you had all the rights, privileges, and duties pertaining thereunto. Well, today, we're going to consider a much more significant identification or identity. We're going to consider our study of the identity of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ our King, who has come to us. We know from the ministry of John the Baptist that our King has come to judge as well as to bless. And we looked at that last week. And we know from chapter 1 that his lineage, his very name, the circumstances of his birth uh, show that he is, in fact, a judge with royal authority. He's no less than a king. He has a pedigree going back to David and Abraham. And that he blesses his people, in fact, all nations, as savior of sinners, ushering forth a prophesied new exodus. Indeed, his name means the Lord saves. How blessed is the name of Jesus Christ. Well, the passage before us sheds light on how he then saves us from our sins. How it is he redeems his people from all their iniquities. And so what I'm going to seek to show you this evening from these short five verses is that Christ Jesus 
was baptized with his people to secure our acceptance with the Father. Christ Jesus was baptized with his people to secure our acceptance with the Father. And we're going to consider this under two headings. In verses 13 to 15, we see Christ Jesus identifies with you, his people, in his baptism. And then verses 16 and 17, we see this glorious Trinitarian interaction. And the Father accepts you in Christ, the Son, alone. So first, looking at how Christ identifies with you in his baptism, we see three different moves here with the three verses. In, the, in first and verse 13, Christ's humble approach to baptism. Look at the verse with me. Then, or at that time, it's the, fir- it's the same uh, word that's used at the beginning of chapter 3, describing the beginning of John's ministry. Now in those days, it's, it's very similar construction. Then, at that time, Jesus arrived or came from Galilee to the Jordan Toward John, assumed here, coming to John, to be baptized by him. This was about a 20-mile journey. We have no idea what level of interaction Jesus and John had growing up. They lived in very different parts of the country. But we do know from Luke's gospel that their parents, their mothers in particular, had a very significant interaction where at the voice of Mary, pregnant Mary, carrying our Lord in her womb, and her voice of greeting her, um, her sister Elizabeth, or her relative Elizabeth, the unborn John the Baptist leapt within his mother's womb. And so spiritually, we can rest assured that John knew there was something very special about this Jesus, something that would make his approach to him utterly remarkable. But the point that I seek to make to you here really ties into John's ministry. Consider what we looked at last week. John came baptizing, but with a a message of repentance. Repentance to prepare the way of the Lord, which is Jesus Christ. A message of repentance set before sinners and baptism intended for a sinful people to cleanse them of all defilement and impurity as they welcome their king to them. And here we read that Jesus, who surely knew this about John's ministry, that Jesus came to John to be baptized by him. What has Matthew already told us about Christ? He was born of a virgin, utterly sinless in his life. If we steal some material from Luke's gospel, we know that Jesus never committed sins as a child. It's not like he he comes at 30 years of age and, and he suddenly becomes perfect as a result of this baptism. No, Jesus comes in humility, already following, as it were, the crowds of people in order to set himself alongside of them. And that is a glorious mystery for us to consider here, that Jesus Christ, in his approach to John, his cousin, is showing forth his humility already, that Jesus comes to be baptized with a baptism for repentance, not for any sin of his own, but because of your sin and my sin. 
We stand at wonder in that. And we might, in fact, have the same response as John then in chapter 14. We've seen Christ's humble approach in this 20-mile journey. And then we have John's reasonable resistance then to Christ's intended plan. But John tried to prevent him. It's really, he, he started to prevent him and didn't conclude this, the, the prevention. He couldn't prevent him. He tried to prevent him saying, I myself, I myself need to be baptized by you, yourself. And do you, you, come to me? John is incredulous. Now, doesn't he know who Jesus is? Arguably, he doesn't. John chapter 1, verse 33, shows us that John the Baptist didn't really fully understand who Jesus was as Messiah at this point. He didn't understand until the Lord revealed it to him. And so too with us, if this eminent servant of the Lord, whom Jesus calls the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets, couldn't recognize Jesus' mission in all of its aspects and details then how can you or I understand that except by the Spirit's help? So let us then take this little detail in the narrative as a motivator, a motivation to plead with God to grant us understanding from His Spirit. We need it desperately. If John couldn't see that Jesus was coming to be baptized in fulfillment of his mission as Messiah without the Spirit's aid, without the Lord's revealing it to him, then neither can we. John's resistance was very reasonable because he understood Jesus was special. He understood Jesus was greater than him. He understood that Jesus was not like the others, not like the Pharisees and the Sadducees or the crowds from Jerusalem. And yet, John's resistance, as reasonable as it may seem, was really an example of blind zeal. So how then does Jesus overcome that? Jesus answering said to him in verse 15 now, permit it, allow it. At this time is really one word, now. Let it be now. For in this way, by this thing, it is fitting, appropriate for us, the two of us, to fulfill all righteousness. And then we see immediately John, as an obedient servant, permits him the ordinance of baptism. There's a lot to unpack here. First, when Jesus says, permit it now at this time, he's both saying right away, as we would typically use the word now, but he's also saying, for right now, at this moment, at at this phase or stage of what I'm coming to do, you need to allow this to take place. There is coming a time when you will not be doing such things for me. That that will be inappropriate when I come in glory, when I come in power. But right now, I'm coming in humility to identify myself with my people. And thus, I need to be baptized. I need your baptism. That I can be set, even as we're engrafted with them and not apart from them. You see, what do we know about Christ's mission? What did Jesus, what does Jesus do for sinners? Jesus loved sinners. Jesus had compassion on sinners. Jesus 
died for sinners. And this is the preparatory step for that work. For Jesus to be an effective, real substitute for you and for me on the cross, he had to go and submit himself to baptism, that he might then be identified as the sin-bearer, as the one who took upon himself the sins of the people. Now, Martin Luther incorrectly understood this example of Christ's baptism to be him even here expiating our sins by taking them and then being baptized to wash them away. That's not what happens here. But surely, in Christ's baptism, we have an anticipation of that great work of expiation, which then takes place on the cross at the end of his life, or his earthly ministry, I should say, and I prefer to say. Jesus' move here is a righteous submission to the ordinance of baptism as it was instituted in John's ministry so that he could identify with his people, identify with you. Now, there's a couple takeaways here. First, it's that we should not neglect the ordinance of baptism. Our confession instructs us not to give an undue delay to the baptism of our children. And certainly, upon profession of faith, we should not unduly hinder or obstruct a sincere professor or adult believer convert from being baptized. We must honor the ordinance. We also shouldn't make a mockery of it. It shouldn't be this casual thing that you do on a whim and a flight of fancy or emotion like we see many churches in modern evangelicalism doing. But it's a solemn ordinance, and it deserves all honor. But also, we shouldn't attach to it any kind of superstition. It's not a magical, uh, hocus-pocus, alchemy kind of transaction. No, it's, it's freighted. It carries with it spiritual weight and significance. And Christ makes that very clear to us, where he says, in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And there's much discussion on this point, too. What does he mean by all righteousness? Well, because of the order of the, uh, the adjective all with the noun righteousness, I take it to mean uh, at generically the righteousness. It, it, what I have to do this right now in order to fulfill righteousness generally speaking. And so not, not particularly, not, not any one particular letter of the law. It's conceivable that yes, Jesus is entering upon his public ministry at about 30 years of age. In the book of Numbers, we see a description of an initiatory rite for priests when they're about 30 years old. They have a ritual cleansing that is something of a baptism, uh, sprinkling with water and an anointing that they might then go forth into their ministry. But I don't believe that's what's happening here for a few reasons. Jesus is not of the tribe of Levi, though he is a priest. The author of Hebrews tells us he's not a priest in the order of Aaron, but rather in the indestructible life of the order of Melchizedek. What's happening here is rather Christ looking at the big picture of his active obedience to the Father, of his perfect obedience to the Father, and what he's come to do as sin-bearer and righteous substitute for sinners in his death. And he's saying, I need to make this identifying marker. I need to come into identity with my people to show myself in solidarity with them, as we can say, 
in order to fulfill all righteousness, in order to do that which the Father has called me to do. And so the question then is, does he? Does he by this move win, we can say, the pleasure of the Father? Let's look at our second heading then. We've considered that Christ Jesus identifies with you in his baptism. I hope I've made that clear. That's the purpose for him being baptized here. Now we must consider that the Father who accepts him likewise accepts you in him alone, in Christ the Son alone. Look at the first half of verse 16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. A couple things here. First, notice we have this passive construction. It doesn't say after John baptized Jesus. It says after being baptized Jesus. What is Matthew doing? He's setting John aside. In fact, we don't hear about him for a number of chapters. And he's focusing now on Jesus Christ. This is about Jesus' identity, about who he is. That's the shift in gears here. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. A note, a point here. We know from Paul's writing that Jesus, in, his bapt- in our baptism, we then are dead to sin. We die with Christ in baptism and then raised up again in resurrection. And we see here Jesus, after being baptized, immediately comes up from the water. I think we have a picture here of the fact that death cannot hold him. He comes up and he comes up immediately. Yes, there's a three-day delay in the, between the death and resurrection for a, for a good reason, and that's not the point of my sermon, but the point is that he can't be held down in the water. He must come up. He must ascend from the water, and that's not to say he was immersed. I mean, come up out of, out of the river, up onto the bank, up onto dry ground is the picture that's given here. And in this now, in this focus, in this honing in on who Jesus is, remember What has just happened? He has just identified with his people. Nobody was waiting on the riverbank with a towel and an ID card saying Jesus is now, you know, a baptized disciple of John or something like that. But there has been a change here, or at least a a signification of what is already true. And that is that Jesus, perfectly obedient to the Father, doing all that he has been tasked to do, that he voluntarily set himself to do, is now seen by all to be identified with the people he has come to save. And how does heaven respond? Look at the second half of verse 16. And behold, the heavens were opened. Who opened the heavens? Well, God did. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. Taking uh, the fact that there's a shift in focus away from John and onto Jesus, I think what we're seeing here is Jesus saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him or hovering over him, uh, alighting upon him as a bird would land on a branch. But surely John would have seen this as well, as well as anyone else there to whom the Lord revealed this glorious interaction. And in this, with the opening of the heavens, with the Spirit of God coming down out of heaven in the form or likeness of a dove, 
and landing on Jesus, we see the Spirit's anointing then on Christ's ministry. What is the significance of the spiritual anointing? Well, we read about it in Isaiah 42.1. Returning there for a moment. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. We're going to get there again. I have put my spirit upon him to do what? He will bring forth justice to the nations and so on. We see it as well later on in Isaiah. Uh, in Isaiah 61, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, has alighted on me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus draws that connection, saying, this day in your hearing, this prophecy has been fulfilled, speaking of his ministry. And so in this moment, when the Spirit comes down out of heaven, we see the anointing of Jesus Christ. But we know that Jesus is fully God. Why does he need this anointing? Well, because he is fully man as well. So not only does he share in the substance and essence and, and glory of the Spirit and of the Father as fully divine God the Son, but now as the fully human servant of God, as the Messiah, he is anointed in the fullest measure with gifts to do this work. What are these gifts? Isaiah chapter 11, 2 through 5, describes them for us in, uh, in prophetic terms. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. That's the reverence of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. He's fully equipped for the ministry of this service to God as a Messiah. And Acts chapter 10 says it uh, directly for us then. In 1038, uh, we have it. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. In the coming weeks, this is the most glorious passage. This is when Christ's public ministry really begins. In the next chapter, which I'm going to get to in the new year, we see Christ thwart the efforts of the enemy in a full frontal assault to bring him down. And Jesus just, by the word of his power, boom, knocks him down. We're going to see then in the chapters after that, he's going to give authoritative teaching to his people in the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to work miracles. He's going to teach in parables and mystery. He's going to confound all his and our enemies in his earthly ministry. Why? How can this man do this? He's been anointed with the Holy Spirit, a spirit of power. 
But what about this dove symbolism? Why did not the Spirit then come as an eagle or as a falcon or as some other mighty creature? Why as a humble dove? There's a lot, of spec, a lot of discussion on this. Hosea chapter 7, verse 11 identifies the picture of the dove with the people of God. So some commentators, and I think that this is plausible, say that, well, the Spirit comes as a dove to show that what Christ has done in his baptism is identify with the church. It's almost like Jesus gets a church uniform because now he's of his people, Israel. That's plausible. Another, another uh, very interesting proposition. I think all of these are helpful to hear, by the way. Genesis chapter 1, we have the first uh, manifestation of the Spirit doing what? Hovering or brooding over the waters. A word that's used frequently to speak of a bird coming down and landing or hovering or brooding over its nest. So perhaps here in his baptism, Jesus is showing forth that he is, as it were, the newly created man to be the head of the church as Savior of sinners, to live a perfect life on our behalf. And surely, unlike Adam, Jesus will confound Satan's temptation in the next chapter. And he will conquer his and our enemies, as I've said, and bring restoration and exercise dominion in a way that Adam never did because Adam failed. So perhaps there's this new creation element. But I think Matthew 11, verse 29, gives us the answer. Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Christ says to all those who are there, he issues an invitation. He says to them, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. Dr. Piper preached on the parallels between baptism and the flood. And do you remember what Noah sends out of the ark? At the end, the end of the flood, after the flood, as the waters begin to recede and brings back to him an olive branch, it's a dove. Why? What did that signify to Noah? That God had granted them rest. That the ark had found its resting place. Jesus promises to us rest for our souls. Jesus' ministry, though it is one of power, though it is one of authority, though it is one that sometimes is marked with, with force as he confronts the enemies of God and of God's people, yet it is one marked with lowliness, gentleness, and humility. He's humbled himself in coming for baptism. He will continue to humble himself again and again and again, even to the shameful death of crucifixion. When he will hang on a cross, when he could have called down legions and armies of angels to his defense. And why? Why? For the joy set before him. To win for the Father eternal souls to glorify Him in heaven for all eternity, to save sinners for whom we will see again and again. He has great compassion and concern. He sees you even now when you sin and when you, when you struggle with your sin and you labor under it and the grief and the guilt and the shame strike you and He doesn't sit as a judge 
He sits as a compassionate Savior. And this is what He has done for us to deliver us out of these things, to redeem us from our iniquities. Behold your Savior with the Holy Spirit descending as a dove and lighting on Him. Behold your Savior who one day will be a sacrificial lamb, quite literally, in a spiritual sense, for your sakes. Set aside his heavenly glory, taking to himself the vesture of a frail man, that you might enjoy everlasting life. What good news is this? And how does the Father then validate it and confirm it to us? Look at verse 17. We see the Father's approval here. Behold, a voice out of the heavens. The last time we've heard a voice out of heaven was at Mount Sinai with the giving of the law. And here, with the revelation of Christ, the gospel, we hear the voice coming out of heaven again. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Father's approval here is palpable. His pronouncement brings together Psalm 2, verse 7, speaking of the Son, and Isaiah 42.1, which we read, speaking of his beloved servant, and jams them together so that we might see now that this Christ who identifies with us, this Jesus who saves us from our sins, is in fact Son, beloved Son of God, and chosen servant to save in whom God is well pleased. Matthew 12.18 uh, repeats this very idea when it says, Behold... My servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Quoting Isaiah 42.1 in another connection when Christ identifies himself as Lord of the Sabbath. And I'm sure we'll get there in a few months' time. But when God says that he has, that he, um, when God says that this is my beloved son, he says, my son, the beloved one. There's an emphasis here on this word beloved. And there's a sense now of that he's beloved having been chosen by God for this task. And having begun to fulfill it even now in full obedience. Our confession puts it well. When it says it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of His church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom He did from all eternity give a people to be His seed and to be by Him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. But notice, this all begins with God's choice, that He has elected Christ, and in Him we are then elected for eternal glory and salvation and everlasting joy. This choice of God is what's described in Isaiah 42, that glorious passage we read. And this messianic sonship then, that Jesus as the son of David, son of Abraham, is also here identified as beloved son of God, is because of his divine sonship and not the other way around. What do I mean by that? There are those who say that Jesus was not the son of God until his baptism. That because Jesus proved himself worthy of being Messiah, then he proved himself as worthy of having the Lagos imparted to him in this act of divine adoption and therefore becoming God the Son. 
This is an ancient heresy, but I think it creeps up now and again in the modern church. That is not what happens. Yes, this messianic sonship, this pronouncement by God the Father is distinct from how we understand Jesus Christ as God the Son incarnate, but they're, they're connected in this way. This one, the messianic sonship, depends upon, flows from, is a consequence of his divine sonship. It doesn't go the other way. The fact that Jesus is only begotten Son of God then leads to the fact that He is beloved Son of God. Do you understand? The eternal Son is the Father's elect for the great task set before Him, the great task of redemption. And this Son, now incarnate, now presenting Himself for this task as Messiah, is thus the Beloved. And upon the human nature of this elect and beloved Son of God, the Spirit Himself is bestowed for the great task. The Trinity here is marvelously revealed to us in this united act. And I, I wonder if in this moment things began to click for John, though I know that there was still much confusion for him to sort out as Jesus' earthly ministry progresses. This mystery of the Trinity, as you all know, is one that is impossible for us to comprehend, but God does give us much light that we might understand its importance, its significance for us, that we might revel in glory and, and stand in wonder and awe at what God does in redemption. But He only gives us uh, so much as is necessary to make known to us that salvation has come in the person of Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, Jesus of Nazareth, he never possessed an ID card. And he doesn't have any need of an ID card in heaven. But that doesn't mean his identity is unimportant or uncertain or at all, um, uh, or at all left up for us to determine. No, when God the Son took to himself a human nature in his incarnation, he humbled himself. And what I've sought to show you this evening is that one central feature of his humiliation was identifying himself with a people, not a perfect people, not a spotless people, not a morally upright people, but a sinful people, a people in need of cleansing and needing to exercise repentance, his people so that he might then bear their sins as their substitute, as our substitute bearing our sins. Christ Jesus was baptized for his people to secure our acceptance with the Father. Because Christ is identified with us, because the Holy Spirit through faith has united us, you, to him, therefore, and only therefore, does the Father accept you then and set his favor upon you and his love upon you. Because he loves this Jesus. He loves his Christ. Do you trust in Christ Jesus for eternal salvation and lasting happiness? And speaking with most of the adults here, I think the answer is yes. But what about the children? Do you trust in Christ, this beloved Son of God? Do you trust in him as your substitute to take upon himself the penalty for your sins? that you might then be welcomed into the Father's living room, into His mansion, to take up an eternal residence there. 
This Christ, He has not forsaken you. Sinner though you may be, His baptism recorded here in Matthew's Gospel shows us that He identifies with you. And He loves to do that. Rather, He has claimed you as His own flesh and blood. What good news is this? This is the good news that we proclaim not just in December and November, as I've said in previous weeks, but all year round and every day of our lives that Christ has come as King to save sinners, to save you and me. And for now, the Father accepts you in Christ the Son, who alone among men is worthy of the Father's approval. We need to set that before our neighbors and our friends and our family members who are yet far distant from Him. And now, glorified and ascended, Christ our Savior stands at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for His church day and night. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, exercising dominion and power over every spiritual force under heaven and even earthly nations, ordering all their courses through history for the good of His church. And He will come again in glory and power to judge and to deliver because He is the risen and glorified Savior, because He is clothed in power and majesty, in full possession of perfect righteousness and God's unqualified approval spoken in our passage, He is heard when He intercedes for you. When He says to the Father, consider Him, I died for Him. Consider her, I died for her. Bring rescue. God the Father hears. And His prayers are effectual because of who He is. When we gather together to pray here at the church, when you pray in your home by yourself or with your families, Jesus Christ is praying with you. And though your prayers and our prayers might be full of faults and, and misspoken words and maybe even bad theology, yet Christ takes the prayers of a sincere believer who belongs and has been entrusted to Him, and He perfects them and brings them to the Father, wholly acceptable to be answered. What comfort is this? And consolation. Because He's identified with His people as a man, because He has passed through the waters of baptism, He suffered humiliation under the curse of Adam's sin and satisfied the justice of God on Calvary's cross. The Father hears Him. The Father accepts Him. And God accepts all those, all of you, who are united with Him through faith. What glorious news is this? Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.